Now we're getting back to, okay, now we're doing civil affairs engagement, and we're not sending a company of civil affairs. We're sending a team or a couple of teams. Right. Because that's all it can, That's all that a, an embassy, uh, that a country team can absorb. They can't absorb more than about 10 or 12 military at one time in the country. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined by Norm Cotton, a retired colonel from the United States Army, civil affairs officer, who's currently working for the Institute for Defense Analyses. Colonel Cotton, thank you uh, for being on the 1CA podcast, and welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. What have you been doing now at, at IDA, the Institute for Defense Analyses? Can you, can you tell us what IDA is all about? Yeah, the Institute for Defense Analyses is uh, one of the FFRDC's federally funded research and uh, development centers, and uh, similar to RAND. RAND is, is something that's very similar to, to IDA. Uh, I'm in the Joint Advanced Warfighting Division, uh, where we do research projects uh, that are joint-focused. And so uh, the National Guard Bureau is, and the Chief of the Guard Bureau is uh, a member of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs now, and so... Uh, typically, uh, you know, on each year, he'll he'll recommend a couple studies be done related to either Air National Guard or Army National Guard forces, and so I've been supporting uh, some of those studies for the last uh, year. Okay. And uh, and then the last six months, I've been working um, on some projects with the Department of Homeland Security related to uh, terrorism risk insurance analysis. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. There's. Uh, is that related to your background, and or is this stretching? It's, what an, it's another growth opportunity for me. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> there is. Uh, the, there's something called the Safety Act program. Congress created this uh, after 9/11. Uh, they wanted industry to create more technology related to anti-terrorism, but the companies that would presumably make that technology. I think of uh, metal detectors, for example. Right. Uh, the companies that would make metal detectors feared if there was another 9-11 or a big terrorist event and they were held liable for their technology not working, right. then then what you would have is companies that would normally make technology that would be very helpful in combating terrorism mm-hmm. and, and doing anti-terrorism. They would not make those products because yeah. there would be fear of no the risk of being sued. No incentive. Yeah. So to incentivize that, Congress created a program where they uh, can have some uh, liability protections and so what we do okay. is help the Department of Homeland Security identify the amount of insurance that they should carry and, uh, and whether or not they should be designated as Safety Act certified. Uh, so that's that's kind of a stretch for me. It's new. Yeah. Uh, I picked this up in the last six months. I'm still in training, actually, for it. So okay. what I help with is the identifying whether or not there is a risk, a third-party liability risk, and then trying to determine whether or not the market they would still sell the equipment uh, absent being designated, you know, and so looking at that criteria and then and then insurance analysis related to that. So that's great. I guess it shows uh, even if you didn't have formal education in, in finance or something right. that uh, as a civil affairs officer, you're broad enough that IDA thinks you can take this on. And um, from your military training, I'm sure it's yeah. applicable. Well, everything we do at IDA is all the research that we do, we do as a team. Okay. And each team uh, that that supports a particular topic is made up of a it's multidisciplinary and so you know we'll oftentimes have you know people right out of college who have degrees in economics or science or whatever and right. then we pair those with kind of senior people 
you know, me being one of the senior type folks that okay. uh, has worked in the Pentagon, who's had joint experience. And so we, we tackle things as, as a team. Good. And, and that's the approach that we take to research is build a, a kind of a multidisciplinary team uh, to look at topics. So Does it work? I think it does. Yeah, I think it does. I think it's very helpful because a lot of the younger people that have, you know, uh, degrees in, you know, science and technology, they don't, a lot of them are not in the military. And so we're doing, we're doing studies for, you know, the joint uh, commands and uh, joint entities. And, 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 and so they, they don't really, you know, have that, a strong military background. And so we pair them up with people that are, you know, senior military, retired, and, uh, and that's, and that, that, that's a good, good approach. Okay. Can you tell us uh, briefly about your, your background? So, um, how many years were you active duty? How many years reserve or AGR? What status were you uh, in civil affairs? Yeah, my career is kind of was broken up into kind of three. I guess I would say there were three distinct sections. Uh, the first seven years, I was traditional uh, reservist. Uh, I was uh, initially enlisted in the Air National Guard. Then I went into the Army National Guard in Alabama. Uh, went through the uh, officer candidate program uh, in the Alabama OCS program. I got my commission in 81, so I'm your group 81, field artillery. And then I spent about six years in, uh, uh, in field artillery total. Uh, most of that was in the Army Reserve because I went to college in Missouri, transferred to the, uh, to an Army Reserve, okay. uh, you know, field artillery unit. And, uh, so that was like my first seven years, finished up my college, uh, did my advanced course in civil, in, uh, field artillery. And then, uh, I, I was in the process of applying to go into the age active guard reserve program. So right. I went into active guard reserve program in 88. So about, you know, after seven years, I went into, uh, went into, uh, active guard reserve program and, uh, I, uh, was in recruiting and then I went to the U S army reserve command. And while I was at the army reserve command as a, just a, just an operations, you know, battle captain kind of thing, uh, the army reserve around that time, this being the early nineties, uh, reached an offsite agreement with the National Guard, and, uh, and it was called it back then. It was called the off. It's called the offsite agreement, which is the uh, the National Guard would be predominantly combat arms division below, and then the Army Reserve would focus on combat support, combat service support, predominantly you know core level and above. And so the Army oh, wow. Reserve got out of the combat arms business pretty much. I mean, there's some exceptions, but that's a more recent development. Well, it was the early '90s. It was yeah. it was when okay. they when they made the decision after the after the Cold War ended to downsize the military. They basically reduced uh, the the military by about thirty percent, and it was kind of like a salami slice. Everybody took a cut, but the Guard and Reserve, you know. Uh, didn't want to be in competition, so they said, okay, you focus on combat arms, we'll focus on combat service support. And uh, so w- when that decision happened, um, you know, I was a young captain, I was like, well, I'm field artillery and I'm AGR now and I, I need a career, I need I need something, you know, more viable. And uh, so I uh, I started, you know, looking into civil affairs and uh, started the process to get qualified in civil affairs. And uh, Do you know if you found it or did someone find you? Actually, someone that I was working with at the U.S. Army Reserve Command had been a civil affairs officer on active duty with the first uh, group and first SF group in uh, Okinawa. Okay. And he said, hey, Norm, you should you should think about being civil affairs. And that's honestly, that's the first I'd ever heard of it. Right. And so as I began looking at it, yeah, that that looks like something I'd really enjoy doing. And uh, 
And, uh, and so I started the process of that. Meanwhile, after four and a half years at the Army Reserve Command and working budgeting and programming and the POM and, and all of that, the Army Reserve was looking to, to send people from the U.S. Army Reserve Command who had experience at a kind of a high level there, send them to the Pentagon to work at OCAR. And so that's what happened to me. I got sent to OCAR and working in the uh, programming, uh, in the PA&E office, working training programs, and then I went into uh, uh, the operations office working oversight of training resources and funds, basically Pentagon, Army Army Pentagon right. work. And uh, I basically kind of gave up on going civil affairs. It's like, you know, it's not going to happen kind of thing. I uh, couldn't get to I'd finished the phase one, which was, you know, the books that you do. And uh, my boss, who uh, who loved to play golf, he'd play golf on Saturdays, and he uh, he often needed a foursome, you know. And he and I would be the guy he would call if he couldn't <laughs> find the fourth guy kind of thing. He'd like, oh, okay. we need a fourth guy. Can they construct? So, you know, anything yeah. for the team. Sure. We know you'll lose. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm a young major, and, you know, he's the colonel, and he, wants me, he invites me to play golf with him on Saturday. I'll go. So, uh, so one Saturday I was doing that. I was basically the fourth guy filling in to play in this foursome. And... Uh, and one of the guys that was we were playing with had just came back from Bosnia. This would have been like 96, 97. And uh, civil affairs colonel. And I uh, regret that I can't remember his name, but he was he was you know talking to me and you know we're in you know putting or whatever. And I and he mentioned he mentioned that he was civil affairs. And I said, well, I tried to be civil affairs, but you know it didn't work out. And he goes and so I told my story. He says he says listen, call this guy Bragg. Call him tomorrow, you know, or call him on Monday and uh, tell him he finished with phase one and my time had lapsed. It'd been like an extra year. And he said, uh, uh, call him and see if you can still get back into the pipeline. Right. And sure enough, I did. And he, it required, uh, you know, a piece of paper waiver saying or something. why, whatever. So I asked for the waiver and within like a day, I got it back saying, yeah, you're back in. You're, you know, you're, wow. when you want to go to, when you want to go to the residence course, and so the same boss that I had played golf with and invited me to play golf, he called out to St. Louis to the, to the Army Reserve Personnel Center out there and told him, listen, I got a cat, you know, I got a major here. He wants to go to the Civil Affairs course. There's one starting in like in two weeks, you know, get him in that course kind of thing. And so yeah. he did. He got me in the door and that was uh, Colonel Terry Lurch. So I, I owe something to him for that. So he got me into the, to the course and that was, uh, I think 97. Uh, I went to that and I just absolutely loved it. You know, it was just, it was just like, this it's is a good a really fit for you. Good fit. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to do the rest of my career. Yeah. And so, um, it took about another year for me to get out of OCAR and get to a civil affairs unit. And so it, that was the, the 354. So, okay. uh, so the, so the first part of my career was the seven years I was traditional, you know, reservist. Uh, this, the, the middle part was, that time uh, from when I came on the AGR program in like 88 until like 97, I got CA qualified. I was basically just doing staff work, you right. know, at Army Reserve Command and, uh, and at OCAR. And then I went to uh, to the 354th. And from the rest of that time, pretty much the rest of my career from 90, from 99 until I basically I retired, I was involved in some way in civil affairs, you know, either in a reserve unit or... Or your civilian job at policy level is CA type work. You've been around the Washington DC area for quite a while now. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, I wasn't really in a civilian capacity. I was, I was active guard reserve. I was a staff officer. Okay. As most active guard reserve people are, they end up 
end up doing a lot of staff work. That's why they exist. Yeah. So uh, this, I was at the 354th CA Brigade, and then I went to the Special Ops Command in Europe, Sokir, which at that time, this is 2004 to 2005 and six time, Special Ops Command Europe had both Africa and Europe as a, their area. Right. And uh, so I was a civil affairs uh Head, head civil affairs guy there, and uh, followed Hugh Van Rusen. Hugh Van Rusen had been right. in the position before I got there, so uh, so I, uh, I I followed him there, and um, and then after that time there, I went to uh, OSD policy to work in ASD Solic as a civil affairs policy uh, person. Okay. Yeah. So I, I wanted to follow up on uh, some of the policy issues that you've been involved with. So you've been tracking uh, civil military operations and, and defense sector reform for a long time. We've got the new national defense strategy, uh, military strategy mm-hmm. as well. How do you see uh, in this unclassified podcast civil affairs fitting in with the national defense strategy and um, you know things that are going on around the world right now? Because we've there's been talk about hey we don't really want to do nation building. Uh, how does that fit in with stabilization efforts? Uh, so what do you see as the niche right now for civil affairs and going forward for the next five or ten years? Well, I, um, I, I'd say that if, as, it regards to, as it regards to post-conflict transitions, I, I believe we're held hostage to policy. Okay, that's just, that's just the way it is. We, you know, somebody makes policy. And we're hostage to that. And what I mean by that is policy is driven a lot of times by assumptions. And so the assumptions are, unfortunately, continue to be that these post-conflict transitions are going to be, and we'll worry about that later. That's the easy part. And so not a whole lot of thought is put into, you know, what that should look like and, and what if those assumptions are valid or not. And so like Iraq, so everybody's familiar with the, the Iraq scenario. The assumptions going in was there would be a humanitarian challenge because we're going from, you know, a dictator who distributes all these services to everybody. And when he's no longer in charge, it's going to be a humanitarian challenge. And so that was the focus. That was the assumption, okay, uh, that, that basically we'd be welcomed and uh, we'd be out of there in a very quick time. Okay, that was... Those were assumptions that became policy, and policy that became assumptions was, hey, it's not going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, anybody who'd studied the Middle East and was familiar with the Sunni-Shia disagreements and the long history of conflict and the fact that Iraq had, you know, a Sunni minority running things and a Shia majority that was on the sideline, that this was not going to be peaceful. This, this was going to be some challenges. You know, well, that got assumed away. You know, well, how did that get assumed away? Well, part of it's because there's not people high enough up in the defense establishment who can wave a red flag and say, stop, we have to, you know, we have to consider this, you know, or those assumptions are invalid or whatever. So So are you saying that there aren't people with the sort of anthropological background or even civil affairs personnel from the military perspective in when you're looking at defense, diplomacy, mm-hmm. development, who are in the mix, who understand that culture and those nuances to inform policy. Yes. I mean, you, you have, 
in every presidential administration, you have people that are brought in from from industry or academia, academics, you know, yeah. background or churns you know, every couple of yeah. years. And, and they're and they're smart, you know, people, but they don't come in with you know a lot of the 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 scars of having dealt with this. A lot of times they're they're learning on the job kind of thing. And then you have military uh, leadership that comes in, and, and they've been trained, you know, basically on combat arms. And they were the best at, at the battalion level, and so they got a brigade command, and then they were the best brigade commander, and they got a, they got a star, and then and, and they fleet up, and but they don't they don't understand that civil military background uh, because or that civil military dimension because you know every time they went to JRTC the, the exercise ends when you capture Shoe God Gordon, you know when you capture that right it's index right you don't you don't start the exercise with we've captured our objective we've now we've overthrown you know uh the military forces of another country and now we're in charge okay start the exercise it, it never happens so, right. so so there's nobody there who who understands that background and uh so regardless of what the the national military strategy is we're not set up for success for these uh, post-conflict transition periods, which you have to scratch your head and go like, wait a minute, we're, we're a military that's built to be expeditionary, okay? Right. Our military's built for that. That's why it's so large. It's built for expeditionary warfare. The Canadians aren't built for that. Canadian Army is not built for expeditionary warfare. If they go and do something overseas, they normally do it underneath. It's either a NATO exercise or a, a NATO operation or it's United Nations peacekeeping mission, and so they fall underneath that. But we're designed, our military is designed to go somewhere expeditionary, defeat a military, take over their territory, own their territory, okay, until we achieve whatever our political objective is. So you have to ask yourself, well, if that's what we're built to do, that's what we're sized to do, then why doesn't somebody put the thinking into the hard part of that, which is the occupation period, the achieving the political objective period, and uh, yeah, so we're not consolidating we're, those gains after you've yeah, held the we're not we're not built for that. And uh, if I were king for a day, I, I I would have a general officer who has a civil affairs background pedigree, uh, and he or she, you know, would be in the Pentagon, on the Army staff, inside the G three. As a you know, a senior advisor to the to the G3 of the Army, who's going to the tank sessions, who sits in on the tanks, who's the ops dep, and is also an advisor to the chief staff of the Army, who's a member of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. That way, whenever we came up with either some kind of immediate military requirement, or if it was a long-standing military plan, you'd have somebody on the Army staff at a very high level who could could speak to the chief staff of the Army and speak to the G3 of the Army and speak up in the tank and participate in other joint planning or collaboration with the State Department and, and talk about these issues. And we don't have anybody like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, the highest ranking civil affairs officer is typically the use of KPOC commander, but his or her responsibilities are all looking down, you know, readiness, focusing on readiness, getting troops ready. They're not really in a position to speak to policy issues. So I think that connects to uh, work that you were doing toward the latter end of your career. You were executive officer, uh, you were, right? So I think this was when you were deputy assistant secretary for the Army, executive officer to the the, uh, the DASA. 
for training readiness and mobilization. Was it during that time when you were working with CSIS on this report? No, the, the CSIS report uh, was something that Congress required. Right. I'm not sure. 2009, 2000, 2008, 2009. Yeah, the report, I think, we, we finished the report in 09. It came out as part of the, I think, the 2000, the, uh, there was a committee report in the 2009 NDAA. And typically, when there's a report out of one of the committees, when one of the committees, and I think this was the Committee on Emerging Threats okay. in the House Armed Services Committee, uh, they said, hey, the Army should look at civil affairs and uh, our, our, our Pentagon, DOD, should look at civil affairs. Right. And, uh, and Was that just, because a member asked for it, you think, or DOD asked them to ask for it? No, what I, what I think happened, and this is just conjecture on my part, but what I think happened is uh, the House Armed Services Committee was in Iraq and maybe Afghanistan, but they were looking at the PRTs. Oh, right. And as they began looking at the PRTs, what they what they found by acts discovery learning what they what yeah. they discovered was that there were problems with civil affairs. Okay, so, so that was a congressional a CODEL or a staff DEL yeah, that was went a out staff there. Staff or you know House Armed Services Committee staff you know yeah. uh, you know work on their own and so that got put into that got identified as an issue for the emerging threats uh, subcommittee and uh, and then that got put into a House report. And uh, because it was in there as something that should be looked at, uh, it was a requirement for OSD to do something. And right. so, so they, uh, uh, you know, they farmed it out to CSIS. Yeah, and, and so you we, were guys we, tagged. We found, yeah, we we went to CSIS to uh, to help us with that. And so uh, Kathleen Hicks was the leader. Yeah, Kathleen that. Hicks and Christine Warmoth. Yep. Okay. Both of them, uh, you know, uh, took that on okay. and uh, did a really good job of identifying uh, the big kind of policy issues. And then uh, when that report was done and completed in 09 and, you know, it was getting ready to be sent back to, to, uh, to the Congress, you know, saying, here's what we found. Uh, Ms. Flournoy, who was the undersecretary of defense for policy at the time, she said, Hey, I want to make sure that the cover memo that goes on this says we're going to put this in the QDR. I'm going to make sure that the QDR kind of solidifies this, and so that, and so that that happened. So, okay. And that, and that was about the same time that we'd already reached the decision to grow the active component, and so a lot of that kind of got kind of weaved in there. So a lot a lot of some things came together at the same time that they weren't necessarily uh, directly related. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Come on out to the 2018 Civil Affairs Symposium, entitled Optimizing Civil Affairs, which will be held at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, on Friday, November 2nd to Sunday, November 4th. Whether for special operations or conventional forces, the active or reserve CA soldier or Marine must be at the ready as the Joint Force, Army, or Marine Command subject matter expert on civil military operations. This requires continuous investment in an innovative and adaptive force, well-networked in planning and operational relationships, and persistently engaged and aligned regionally to facilitate political military goals and objectives. Given the new crossroads CA finds itself a century since its modern inception, policy and force stakeholders must re-examine the culture for civil affairs. How can the regiment optimize its force going forward? To register for the CA Symposium, go to civilaffairsassoc.org forward slash events. 
Lodging is available on post on a first-come, first-served basis. For more information, go to IHG.com forward slash Army Hotels. This symposium will be part of the Civil Affairs Centennial Week at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which will be held on 29 October to 2 November with a regimental ball the evening of the 2nd. For more information about the Centennial, go to sock.mil forward slash SWIC. That's sock.mil forward slash SWCS. Or go to Facebook at facebook.com forward slash JFK Center and School. Welcome back to the 1CA podcast. You mentioned before having somebody, uh, a senior civil affairs officer, um, to to advise the Army mm-hmm. about integration with civil affairs. And some of this came out of the recommendations in this report. So I think listed uh, nearly 10 or a dozen recommendations that came out of this uh, February 2009 report. Uh, I'll read just a few of them. So reintegrate all Army civil affairs forces under Special Operations Command and create within USASOC or one or two-star active civil affairs general officer to oversee and advocate for all Army civil affairs forces. Uh, That has not yet happened. I think something that has somewhat happened is embedding civil affairs expertise in key strategic organizations throughout the department across the U.S. government. This includes OSD, Joint Staff, Army Staff, uh, Combatant Command Headquarters, as well as State Department, Embassies, and USAID. And I know there are people in AID and state and helping to make those connections, uh, but not everywhere. Fully implement the decision to establish civil affairs as a branch of the U.S. Army. Yes, it is a branch. And ensure upward mobility for civil affairs personnel. Still ongoing is deepen general purpose and special operations forces understanding of the capabilities and application of civil affairs forces. The report in this executive summary talked about how the projected demand for civil affairs continues to outpace supply. Is it your understanding that's still the case? I'm not sure right now, given the, the demands, if, if, if we'd say that, that it's uh, overly stressed right now. I, I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I think given that the Is demand we, for forces has gone down, I think it's something that's, that's, yeah. that's more manageable. We're pulling back a little bit. We, yeah. we expanded, and now we're sort of contracting. You know, we had the, the 85th Active mm-hmm. Duty Brigade stood up, and that's gone down, and yeah. it waxes and wanes over time. Yeah. But I think, though, what's, what is something that we're kind of getting, we're kind of getting back in some ways, we're getting back to what, you know, what was, what is new now used to be old. It used to be, this is back 80s and 90s, 70s, that civil affairs, we only had the one battalion, the 96CA battalion, you know, for a long time. And and if you went to the 96CA battalion, you were deployed something like 270 days a year, right? And you were out doing... In really kind of low level civil military engagement out at all the combat commands. And now we're back to doing that again. Okay. So whereas the, the key unit of action, if you will, for Army civil affairs has been the CA company supporting the BCT. Yep. X number of BCTs. That's the, that's the, that's the measure. You know that we're we're measuring our you know everything against right okay so we had a CA company for every BCT and that was kind of the, the how we measured it now we're getting back to okay now we're doing civil affairs engagement and we're not sending a company of civil affairs we're sending a team or a couple of teams right. because that's all a combat that's all that a an embassy uh, that a country team can absorb they can't absorb more than about ten or twelve military at one time in the country. Doing, doing X. No work for them to do. It's 
they have it's, limited number of it's, space well, it, it's really a lot of times it's limited by the, what the host nation wants and the host nation you know doesn't want anything more than about you know 10 or 12 people and so we when I was at AMRA we asked Rand to do a study on civil affairs and what the future would look like right and uh, what what the civil affairs need to be able to do in, in the future kind of thing and of course we were stressing that there ought to be one standard for everybody and then that in standard should include language and culture everybody should get it okay and uh, that was that was our view from a policy standpoint that's the way it should be for active and reserve and that's MRA so Rand took that on and the, you know Rand you know did the, you know independently looked at things and they went out and talked to the command commands and what they came back was the future demand for civil affairs is going to be at the team level it's the teams that's going to be the main unit of action is civil affairs teams. Very small. Okay. Okay. That's what the combatant commanders are saying. That's what the combatant commanders want. Yeah. And then around the same time, there was a, uh, it was in the DPG, the Dennis Planning Guidance, there was a requirement for the Army to do a study on um, reserve engagement teams. And the people that wrote that requirement and got into DPG, they were they were reserve component policy people. And their view was... You know, the Army should build these unique teams in Army force structure. So basically create something that doesn't exist, that just does engagement. And so that came down to the Army, and, and the Army's view was, no, we're not going to build force structure just around engagement. Right. But what we will do is we will go to the combatant commands and we'll ask them what they want. And so, uh, you know, Mr. Lamont sent a letter to the Joint Staff saying, go ask the combatant commands what is it is that they want in the engagement arena. And as uh, as the different combatant commands got the requirement and contacted me about, hey, what do you want? I said, listen, tell me your hardest problem. What is it that you can't do and your combatant command? Tell us what that is, and we'll see if the reserves can do it. Yeah. Somehow, if there's some reserve component you know, entity that can do that, and then we'll kind of aggregate all that up, and then and we'll we'll report it back. So as that came in, and much of it was classified, you know, but it overwhelmingly fell into they wanted small teams for long periods of time. Okay, what does long mean? Sometimes it was a year. You know, it, you know, one requirement was, hey, there's this country we just now started working with their military. And we we're we're at zero. I mean, we we don't have any. We don't really know anything about them. They don't you know they don't know anything about us. We're trying to figure out what their needs are. We would like to have a general officer and maybe you know a few dozen people for a year to go and work in that country and help fill it out. A lot of it was um, a lack of foreign area officers in in certain command commands. Yeah. You know, it's like hey, we're we can't do anything with this country because there's absolutely nobody there. Yeah. In that country. Nobody has the connections, no one understands. There's no, the there's no US the military you know, rep in the in the embassy. Yeah. And uh so uh, we were like, well, we got we got reserve component people. There's an Army Reserve FAO program. And so maybe the Army Reserve can provide additional FAOs, uh, foreign area officers uh, to go and, and serve there on a on an ADSW tour. So that was another one. But <clears throat> the biggest majority of them fell into civil military relations problems. Okay. You know, it was a particular country 
wanted the U.S. to provide some military expertise to help them in some kind of civil dimension, working with the police or doing something with uh, uh, their uh, emergency services, you know, something related to that. And uh, and some of, those, some of those could have been filled by the National Guard, who does a lot of, you know, civil military things, uh, DISCA type stuff. But overwhelmingly, what it said was most of what the combat commanders wanted that they couldn't get done was very small, but they wanted them for long periods of time. Not don't not the two week episode of hey I'm going to go over there and you know build a bridge or whatever I, you know I need something building capacity uh, in the host nation's military and I need it there for a longer period of time and it's more civil military related than it is you know combat arms related so I think that's still the future yeah. uh, right now is that we need more uh, civil affairs teams doing more engagement and. Because they're going to be operating, you know, somewhat independently of other forces, you know, they need to have the training that that helps them do that. You know, stand on their own. Yeah. Yeah. Special operations forces know how to do that. They're designed. uh, Their communication, training, doctrine, everything is is designed for them to operate as a small team. And and so the people that are going to be doing the civil military related engagement need to have similar skill sets. Yeah. Language and culture being a big one. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be reliant on translators all the time. Right. Uh, so are we, are we footing that bill right now? Are we helping to deliver already for some of these combatant commanders and what they requested years ago? Is this happening? Well, I, it's been a while since I touched that. So I've been out of the building for a while. So I'm not really sure exactly where we're at on civil military uh, team engagement. I know that the Army Reserve for a period of time was working with Southcom and, and doing a lot of that engagement. And then the 85th, once they got basically get, were able to be available to do that, have kind of picked up that, that mission yeah. set. And uh, they may be doing it in other, other combatant commands. I'm really, I'm really not sure yeah. exactly where they're at. I wanted to ask you uh, one final question here uh, for our listeners. So you came from the, uh, from the Army side of civil affairs, but uh, and Navy got out of the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marine Corps still has civil affairs uh, groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they may be losing one of them in the next uh, couple of years. Um, so they're also doing a little downsizing. What uh, tips do you have? At, if, you know, someone who came through the system on the Army side and has been at the, at the policy level, some tips for uh, sort of a company-level NCO or uh, team-level even to fill in the gaps for what the active duty component or especially reserve in between battle assemblies, how can people get smart on civil affairs related issues following current events or do some additional training that you saw of value throughout your career mm-hmm. and you've heard um, would add and prepare them for going out to the field? Well, I would, I would say that the thing that helped me the most as a, because I came into civil affairs as a major, so I didn't have time as a team leader, uh, wasn't in as a captain, but what was helpful for me was there were senior people colonels that that were in my brigade uh colonel widden was was a mentor was my mentor basically and i learned a lot from him uh just you know on thursday night he would come in every thursday night 
yeah. uh, to do. He, uh, a lot of times he didn't get paid for it. He just came in on Thursday nights into the unit. And uh, instead of me going home, I was like, no, I'm going to hang out with him in, at the unit on Thursday night. And we go get a hamburger and, and we he'd talk about you know, uh, all the different civil affairs uh, operations he had been on. He was in, he was one of the few Army Reserve Civil Affairs people that went to uh, Operation Just Cause. Right. And, uh, and then he, he was one of the earliest ones who went into, to uh, Kuwait uh, and to Saudi Arabia for uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And uh, so just hanging out with him and talking to him is, is how I learned a lot. Okay. Okay. I learned a lot from other civil affairs people. Right. You know, senior people, you know, and so I would, you know, I'd ask them, you know, uh, you know, about their experiences and stuff. And, and uh, I learned a lot, learned a lot from that. Book wise, I, you know, I, you know, there's uh, a bell for Adano, which is an old book. And it used to be required reading if you were civil affairs. Read that. Um, I, I recommend that. And, and one that's related to military, government, occupation, IMSG stuff is a book by, and I got it here right here. It's by Stephen Melton. It's called The Clausewitz Delusion, uh, How American, How the American Army Screwed Up the Wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, this book, uh, actually, the, the book by Melton, and an article that he wrote uh, for the Joint Force Quarterly called Conceptualizing Victory Anew, Revisiting U.S. Law, Doctrine, and Policy for War in its Aftermath. This article that he wrote, and I told him this, but at the time, um, really helped guide that memo, the Lamont memo, was the things that was captured here in this uh, Joint Force article by uh, by Melton. And Melton is a retired uh, lieutenant colonel from the Army and uh, assistant professor uh, on Army tactics at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. So, so books like these uh, I'd recommend, and there's others. There's, there's, been, there's been other books that have been written by... Uh, People that uh, you know have been in civil affairs and uh, and uh, they write about their experiences. I think that's that's key. Is for, yeah. You know, having each generation of civil affairs people kind of train the train previous generations. And it's unfortunate that so many people that worked in kind of military governance type military occupation have now they're World War II vets and most of them have passed on. You know, getting their experiences and understanding. You know. The things that they did, uh, that that would be something I wish we could still do, but they obviously have kind of passed on. So Right. Yeah. Well, we'll include that in the show notes. Colonel Norm Cotton, thank you very much for being on the 1CA podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.